Well, amen. Uh, you know, I love preaching the gospel all the time, and especially at Christmas time. Uh, and that's even more true this year as we begin a new series of teachings today. I don't always do Christmas series. You know, sometimes I'll just preach one Christmas message on Christmas Eve and then another on Christmas Sunday. But we're going to actually get started in a series today, uh, the first of several series that will begin over the next several months from the Gospel of Matthew. So we turn our attention once again to the New Testament today uh, as we begin to unpack uh, this very important gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of, of course, four that we have in the Bible. And this particular series that we're calling Then Jesus Came, uh, obviously, is one that deals with the early years of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll focus on the birth and the early ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what's unusual. Uh, to get us ready for this wonderful series from the Gospel of Matthew, I want you to take your Bible this morning and open it to the book of Isaiah this morning, chapters 41 and 42. Now, I know what you're thinking. This guy really has lost his mind. We've been suspicious for a long time, and only Pastor Jim would begin a series from Matthew by going to Isaiah. Well, I am crazy, but crazy like a fox. Would somebody say amen this morning? Because there's a reason I'm doing this, and that is, namely, before we get into the actual birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, I think it's a wise thing for us to properly set it up from the Old Testament. And the best way to do that is, of course, by looking at what the biblical prophets said about the coming of the Messiah several centuries before it actually happened. Those prophecies uh, that you find in the Old Testament, there are many of them by many different prophets. Men like Isaiah and Zechariah and Jeremiah, these and others prophesied to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they did it several centuries. Isaiah, for example, 750 years before the birth of Jesus actually happened. And those prophecies about the coming Messiah, who we know, of course, as the Savior of Israel, and not only the Savior of Israel, but the Savior of the whole world, come, of course, uh, in the midst of major difficulties in the lives of the nation of Israel. The people of Israel, at the time of Isaiah, are looking ahead to a time known as the Babylonian captivity, a time where they'd be conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and then carted off to live in a foreign land, in slavery, in exile from this beautiful promised land that God had given to them according to his covenant. And many of those people, of course, at the time that the prophets were delivering these important words were wondering, do we have any hope? Is there any hope for us as a people? Is there any hope for the future? Or has God simply written us off because of our blatant disobedience? Can I say in the times in which we live today, people are still asking those same questions, I think. I mean, the world is still just as messed up as it was then. People are still just as hopelessly lost as they were then. The world is still broken. People are still a mess today. And as they look for answers to the many problems and the many challenges that we surely do face, the question that's raised this and every Christmas is the question, is there hope? Is there hope for these otherwise hopeless times? And if there is hope, where in the wide world are we to look for it? 
This is the question that Isaiah the prophet, 750 years before the birth of the Messiah, helps us to actually answer. And so what I'd like to do is begin this morning in this series about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to begin by looking at the last part of Isaiah chapter 41 and the first part of Isaiah chapter 42. And as you find it in your copy of the Word of God, those of you that are able, I'll ask you to stand as we take a look at it this morning. Isaiah will begin in the last statement of Isaiah chapter 41 and then read the first several verses of Isaiah 42. This is what the Bible said. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, he's talking about idols, fashioned of gold or silver or wood. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a what? Say it out loud. They are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory. I give <clears throat> to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. This is the word of God, and all God's people said, Father, we thank you for the power of this scripture, <clears throat> which points us squarely to a coming servant, one who would make an eternal difference in the lives of people who were wandering in hopeless aimlessness without light, without direction. Father, we know that's our world today. And as we search for a solution, may we look in the proper direction, not in the way the world does, but in the way the Bible leads us to a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is our prayer. Guide us now through the word. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. 
There are four passages in the prophecy of Isaiah that theologians refer to as servant songs. Servant songs. Uh, these passages are kind of uh, formatted in poetic uh, adjustment, and so you won't see them running across the pages of your Bible, but they're kind of indented. And that's the form of a psalm or a song. And these servant songs have, four of them, have all in common uh, this unnamed, mysterious servant. Obviously, they're called servant songs because they're all about a servant. Uh, and that servant, of course, we know to be what we call the Messiah, the anointed one, God's chosen deliverer to come to set his people free. God plans to send this servant deliverer to open up uh, the doors of the prison house in which the people are kept in bondage, to shine light in a dark place, to liberate them. And in these four servant songs of Isaiah, chapter 42, this is the first one we're looking at today, but you'll find another one in chapter 49. You'll find a third in chapter 50, and you'll find the most famous in what may be the most important passage in the Old Testament, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. They all speak of this anonymous servant of the Lord that we speak of today, not with a small letter S, but with a capital S, because we believe that this servant is the Savior who is Christ the Lord. He was the Messiah of Israel, but we also believe that he's the Savior of the world who is Jesus Christ. And in this passage that we've read, I went back a couple of verses to the last part of chapter 41, which is all about idolatry, something that you and I cannot trust to find hope. And Isaiah, after having completed this discussion about places we ought not look to find hope in our broken times, he then comes to chapter 42 and spins it positive. Here's where you should look instead. It's not to idols but it's to my chosen servant. And so it's a wonderful contrast. And the description that Isaiah gives in chapter 42 of this unnamed anonymous servant deliverer is an unpacking of what we would call the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why many refer to these servant songs as the gospel according to Isaiah. I'm just telling you, it doesn't matter where you look in the Bible you're going to find the gospel of Jesus Christ. We just spent eight or nine months looking at the gospel according to Moses in which you'd have to be deaf, dumb, and blind not to see the hand of God through the coming Messiah working grace to people who basically had their lives bound up in law. And the same is true in Isaiah. So we need to open up our eyes and see the grace of God even in these Old Testament books. And as we look at chapter 42 this morning, I want you to see three parts uh, to this gospel according to Isaiah that you do well to notice. The first is a false delusion. The second is a powerful solution that leads thirds, uh, thirdly to a wonderful conclusion. Let's take them one at a time this morning. First of all, beginning with the false delusion. And I would simply make this statement to begin our unpacking of chapter 41, and that is this, man-made remedies for spiritual brokenness always fail. Did you hear me say amen? We live in a broken world, but the world has always been broken since the time of Adam and Eve. 
And in our brokenness, we try to find ways to put the pieces of Humpty Dumpty back together again. But we have this penchant of looking in all the wrong corners and in all the wrong places to find healing for the brokenness that identifies not only this world, but that identifies our very lives. And I'm just here to say this morning, man-made remedies will not do. They will never be able to put the Humpty Dumpty of your life back together again because man-made remedies for spiritual brokenness always fail. We didn't read all of the last half of Isaiah 41, but if we had of, it would have become very clear and even is clear from the last two verses that we did read that the culture of Isaiah's day was saturated with idolatry. When we talk about the people of Israel going uh, and suffering defeat at the hands of the Assyrians and the hands of the Babylonians, later at the hands of the Medo-Persians, you can mark this down. What led them to be conquered like that? I'm going to tell you exactly what it was, idolatry. That was the problem. You look at all the ills and the difficulties of Israel. And did not Moses try to warn them before they ever went into the promise? Somebody say amen. There's a method to the madness here. And it's not madness, it's healing. But there is a method. Moses knows before they ever get into the land what their biggest problem and challenge is going to be. And he says, look, here's the thing. You're going to rub shoulders with idols. You need to destroy them. Have nothing to do with them or they will wreck your life. God wants you to be the head, not the tail. But if you bow down to foreign idols... Your enemies will be the head and you'll end up being the tail. And that's exactly what happened. The idolatry was what got them into bondage. Look, for example, at Isaiah 41 and verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to what? Say it out loud. To carved idols. And because God loved his people, here's what he did. He sends one prophet after another. To say, you need to wake up. All these prophets warned the people of Israel that idols were not to be trusted, that idols were no God at all. They're a false hope, something that Isaiah reminds them yet again here in verse 29. Behold, they are all a what? A delusion. You need to circle that word. They're a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are but empty Wind. Now, of course, in Isaiah's day, uh, idols were these tangible images that you could actually pick up and hold or place in your home. They, they were images that could be reduced to statues or figurines or charms of some kind. And here's what's a bit troubling about that. That's how most people in the world still see them. When you start talking about idols to people, most of the time, that's what people think of First, But can I say this morning, idolatry is way broader than that. I- idolatry is way beyond figures and sculptures and figurines. An, an idol can be an idea. An-, an-, an idol can be a philosophy. It can be a personal possession. An idol can actually be another person. And here's what's even more challenging. It can even be a good person. They don't even have to be a bad person to be an idol. I'm telling you, if it's more important to you than God is important to you, it just became an idol. Doesn't matter how pretty it is, how dressed up it is, what it's made of, whether it's a concept or something more tangible, any heart-level substitute for God is by definition an idol, and the modern world is totally saturated with and infested by them. 
Martin Luther said one time, a God is that to which we look for all good and in which we find every refuge in every time of need. That to which your heart clings and entrusts itself is really your God. Man, he made that statement in the 16th century. And he's absolutely spot on, even in the 21st century, as we reread it even to this day. It's true. Even whatever it is can be described as basically a good thing. The problem is most people don't really believe that. But it's absolutely true. The root problem in all of life is that we keep going to false gods thinking that they can save us, thinking that they can meet the greatest need of our lives. And I could give you a list a mile long of what some of the most pervasive idols in our culture, many of them are sexual in nature, amen. They're idols. Anytime you cohabitate with somebody that you're not married to, you just brought an idol into your house. Anytime a church ordains homosexual clergy and engages in the performance of marriages to people who are of the same sex, they've just brought an idol into the temple of God. You see what I'm talking about this morning? Let me make it a little more personal. Anytime a supposed Christian says, you know what, I don't need the church. I can get all of God I need out on a bike ride or out on a lake or out on the golf course. You have just brought an idol into your home. See what I'm saying this morning? I play golf a little bit, if you can call it playing golf. I would say that's a good thing because I always enjoy it. But it can become an idol real quick. And so can a thousand and one other things. But here's the thing about them. They cannot save you and they cannot heal the brokenness of your life. If you are dependent upon that kind of stuff to deliver you, you are living, according to Isaiah, in a dream world. It, brothers and sisters, is a delusion. That's the message of Isaiah. Idols never have and never will be able to deliver you. Now, that leads to a question, well, if idols can't do it, then what will? Well, thankfully, God moves from false hope to real hope, even right here in Isaiah chapter 42, because we move now from a false delusion to a powerful solution, and here's the statement that I would make in conjunction with that, only the Lord's servant can heal our brokenness. Mad-made remedies always fail. But God's servant, Savior, Deliverer never fails. Amen. Isaiah continues, and he makes this wonderful contrast that couldn't be more clear. Notice how chapter 41 ends. Behold a delusion. Notice how chapter 42 begins. Behold my servant. I mean, that's the contrast. Behold the delusion, idols. Behold the solution. My servant. And the question we won't answer is, who is this servant? Well, he's not named and he never is in Isaiah. But he is described in the description itself when you couple it with the rest of the biblical witness is more than sufficient to help us understand exactly who Isaiah the prophet is talking about. This becomes a messianic prophecy of Isaiah because the servant is identified with Jesus Christ, the very son of God who described himself how, in Mark 10, 45, as the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Uh, the guys last week in their preaching were talking about some of the names of people that are defined in the Bible as servant of the Lord, right? Moses was a servant of the Lord. David is a servant of the Lord. Here's the thing. So is Jesus. Jesus is the great servant of the Lord as identified by Moses and as affirmed by himself in the Gospels. Now, the question is, what can we know about this servant? Well, I'm going to give you four things from Isaiah's prophecy this morning. The first thing that Isaiah tells us about him is that he'll come with power. Was Jesus a powerful Lord? Somebody say amen. He will come with power. And that's true for two reasons highlighted here. First, because the servant comes by the sovereign choice and will of God himself. It is God who sends the servant. He is my servant. He is my chosen the Bible says here. So he comes by the choice of God, a God who, even in verse 5, makes clear, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it. This all-powerful creator-sustaining God says, this is my servant and this is my chosen. But then notice again in verse 1 that God says, I have put my spirit Spirit upon him. Did you see that? Would you say amen? See, that's very important. Don't miss that. That's a reference, of course, to the Holy Spirit. Because in any spiritual endeavor, it's the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's where the power comes from. Man, if you don't have the presence of the Holy Spirit, you've got no power. You look at the church in the book of Acts. Where did the power come from? From the Holy Spirit. And that's true for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because sure enough, when you read the gospel accounts, especially in the gospel of Luke, when Jesus burst onto the scene to begin his ministry, I mean, especially Luke, Luke goes out of his way to describe Jesus as being guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Who falls on Jesus at his baptism? The Spirit descended from heaven like a dove. And after his baptism, Jesus is described there in Luke as full of the Holy Spirit. And then you turn the page after Jesus' baptism and you find Jesus being led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil 40 days and 40 nights. And as he emerges out of the desert, victorious over the devil and temptation, Luke says that Jesus returned to Galilee. How? In the power of of the Spirit. You see the work of the Holy Spirit in the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the servant that Isaiah is talking about here is one who's able to heal and able to deliver because he comes in the full power and authority of the Trinitarian God. If you can't see the Trinity here in Isaiah 42, you need to put your spectacles on. God the Father sends his servant, God the Son, who is empowered by God, the Holy Spirit. There it is right there, brothers and sisters. The servant will come with power. Second thing we can know about the servant is he'll bring forth justice. He'll bring forth justice. That's made clear again here in verse 1. In fact, it's his primary mission. Power for what? Power to bring forth justice. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now you need to mark that because that's the key statement of the whole passage. That's the purpose of the coming servant. 
He will bring forth justice to the nation empowered by the Spirit to do that very thing. In fact, Isaiah will uh, dwell longer on this particular aspect of the servant in Isaiah 61. Look at Isaiah 61 beginning in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is the servant actually speaking in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to comfort all who mourn. And the reason that we know this is talking about Jesus is because that's what the gospel writers use to apply to Jesus. That's quoted directly in the gospel accounts to help us identify who this Jesus of Nazareth actually, well, he's the guy that Isaiah was talking about all those centuries ago. It's the same guy. Now, when we talk about justice, we have this tendency, first and foremost, to think about justice in what I call a legal sense. And there's a lot of emphasis on justice you hear coming from the Christian community today, right? Social justice, racial justice, economic justice. I call those kinds of things legal justice. And much of that is right on. I think you can support a lot of that from the pages of the Bible. But I don't think that's the kind of justice that the servant is coming to minister on the earth. I think that the justice brought by the servant deliverer here is much broader than legal justice. It's restorative justice. And the reason that I say that is because it's not just one segment of society that needs the kind of justice that the servant deliverer is coming to give us. It's the whole world that needs it, right? And so he's talking about the whole world being messed up and needing to be restored in some way, shape, or form. And so when Isaiah talks about the Messiah coming to institute justice, he's talking about the Messiah coming to usher in this better, greater, more godlike world that, that every single one of us in here long for. He's talking about somebody that can come back and put the brokenness of the world back to the right like it was during the initial stages of creation when Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day and there was no sin. There was no brokenness. There was nothing wrong. No idol is able to do that. But this is the purpose of the coming of the Messiah, to put everything that's broken and everything that's wrong back to the right. To put the broken world, the Humpty Dumpty, if you will, back together again. No idol can do that. And let me be quick to say, ain't no politician going to do it either. No political party is going to do it. No economic system is going to do that. Man, there have been all kinds of economic systems. Boy, if we could just all adopt this, it's going to bring utopia, heaven on earth. None of them has been able to do it, not even capitalism. Communism can't do it. Marxism can't do it. Secular humanism can't do it. Even our own capitalistic system is, is full of holes, and there's a lot of godlessness even in a capitalistic system. It can't bring about heaven on earth. The only solution that can heal what's broken and restore what's been lost because of sin is a God-appointed, God-anointed Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen. 
He'll come with justice. He'll come with power. But notice a third thing about the coming of the servant. He'll minister with gentleness. This is how he'll bring justice. Verse 2 says, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Man, Jesus didn't come to break people. He didn't come to smother them. He came to liberate them, right? The servant's gonna come with what the New Testament writers referred to as what? Meekness. Meekness, which in our culture today is a weak word. No, it's not. Not biblically. It's a word of strength. It's strength subdued. Strength under control. In other words, when the servant Messiah comes, he's not going to come with an overbearing or oppressive manner. He's not going to come self-centered or authoritarian. He's going to come with gentleness. And then that exactly how Jesus came. My star is born in a manger. He was born in a cattle trough and then raised a carpenter in Nazareth, and what good thing comes out of Nazareth? Right? That's exactly how Jesus came. You know, usually in our world today, whenever there's what's called a regime change, it's always with force. It's always with tanks rolling down the street. But when the kingdom of God drew near in the coming of Christ, Jesus didn't come with tanks in the streets. And he didn't come with armed rebels, right? I mean, those armed guys showed up in the Garden of Gethsemane and he said, what, you bringing a bunch of armed people to arrest me? I'm going with you. He didn't trample on people. He didn't take advantage of people. He wasn't motivated by power and he wasn't motivated by money and he wasn't motivated by position. By his own testimony, Matthew chapter 11, he said, I am gentle and humble in heart. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. When Jesus came, he came quietly, bringing justice and righteousness to a broken world. Everybody with me so far, say amen. Because there's a fourth thing that Isaiah used to describe this coming servant deliverer. He'll come with power. He'll bring forth justice He'll bring it with gentleness. But then there's a fourth characteristic that has to do with persistence. He will labor till the work is finished. And don't you know that as we gather together to celebrate the manger, in order to celebrate the manger rightly, you can't leave out the cross. Because the manger was meant to lead to a cross. Bethlehem was meant to lead to Golgotha. And aren't you grateful this morning that Jesus didn't wilt under the pressure? He knew what his mission was. Are you not grateful this morning that Jesus didn't fizzle before the finish? That he didn't get up off of the ground there in Gethsemane having sweat drops of blood and said, you know what, I am done with this. Forget this mess. I'm going back to Nazareth 
But he doesn't do that. And maybe Paul said it best in that great hymn to Christ in Philippians 2 when he said, Jesus did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in the likeness of man and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the what? Even to the death of the cross. Now, I know what many of you may be saying today. You say, well, wait a minute. You say that the servant came to bring justice. I don't see it. I mean, this world is still messed up. We're still hopelessly divided. People are still marginalized if they ever have been. Well, that's true, but can I say this morning, the work of Christ ain't done yet. Hey, hey, hey. I mean, the work of Christ is not finished yet because God's plan for redemption is still unfolding for there will come a day, the Bible says, when the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And when he does, the scriptures make clear that he will come to establish a throne on a recreated new heaven and new earth. And when he does, he will put all enemies under his feet, all earthly enemies under his feet, and the last great enemy that will be destroyed forever at the coming of Christ is death itself. In that day, the servant will reign and rule in perfect justice because the Bible makes clear in Revelation 21 that he will have made all things new. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for in that day the former thing will have passed away. Now the question remaining is, what are we supposed to do with that? How are we to respond? And that leads us to the understanding that new things require a new song. So the third thing that we see moving from this false delusion to a powerful solution is a joyful conclusion, namely this, the right response to God's grace is true and genuine worship. Isaiah ponders these words from the Lord about the coming of the servant, and he basically erupts in a song of praise here in verse number 10. He gets through this description, it's like he stops, and what does he say next? Sing to the Lord a new song his praise to the end of the earth. And let me just say, when you understand who you are as a sinner and when you understand that God loves you so much that he came to earth in the flesh via the Son of God who is God in the flesh and he lived a sinless life and died a sacrificial death all the way to the rigorous death of the cross, but God raised him again from the dead and ascended him into heaven and one day Jesus is coming. Listen, when you understand all that God has done for you in spite of who you are, simply because of his great love for you. If that doesn't cause you to jump up and shout, you may not be saved. 
The greatest need of your life here today, if there's not a song in your heart because the God has made all things new in your life, you may well need to be born again. And today may be the day that you should come to Jesus and find the fullness of the love of God, recognizing the grace of God in the gift of the servant of God and give him praise for it. Throughout the rest of this song in the last part of the chapter, I mean, Isaiah is going <laughs> to call out names of people in all these different geographic areas saying, get up and sing from the sailors in the coastal communities to those who live in the desert places to people who live in the central lowlands and the beautiful valleys to the people who live in the mountainous regions. Isaiah makes it clear the gospel is real and the gospel is for everybody. And God's greatest desire is to shine the light of Jesus in every dark corner of the world that people might recognize who he is and that they might recognize what the Lord alone can do to bring life and light and newness into their life. I'm telling you, there's a reason. I read this morning in my devotional time from the Psalms where it simply says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And the way we do that is through the worship in spirit and in truth of the living God. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. And what is it that we're supposed to sing? I'll tell you what it is. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Can you say amen this morning? That's the new song of the new age in and through Jesus Christ. Because that king that has come is none other. He's not a nameless servant. He's got a name, and it's the name that is above every name, and that name is Jesus Christ. This is God's word, and all God's people shouted, amen, amen and amen. Let's put our hands together in joyful praise to the goodness of God. Amen. I'm just saying, if you can't find the gospel in the Old Testament, you need to sit down and read it again. Because the gospel is from everlasting to everlasting.